Um, so we, we've been going through the, the book of Acts, and um, what, um, what I thought today is that I'd, um, I'd like to actually have a bit of fun in the book of Acts. So, um, so the topic for today, and my goal and topic for today is to have a bit of fun um, and to see if I can make you think. Okay. Now, I'm not sure you're going to agree with all the points that I make today, but um, if I can just make you think why, then or even cement in your own minds why you believe the things that you do, then I'm going to have achieved my task. Okay. So we're now a quarter of the way through this book, and I think it's really important to remember as we go forward both the historical and the transitional nature of this book. Or otherwise, going forward, we're going to be struggling with ideas, especially around the areas of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and around the areas of tongues, around baptisms, around the idea of laying on of hands, um, and etc. And so today I'd like to look at just three brief um, interests in the book of Acts. They're all relating to the Holy Spirit. Um, being firstly, so these are the things, things that I'd like to look at. Firstly, the keys to the kingdom, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, and then tongues. So those are the three items that I'm going to to have a look at today. Um, now, a key element, a key element that um, is to keep in remembrance that Luke is writing in history and he's not developing doctrine. Let me say that again because it's so important in the book of Acts. A key element is to keep in remembrance that Luke is writing history and not developing doctrine. So please do not develop doctrine from the book of Acts, even in something like Acts chapter 2, and ignore elsewhere in Scripture propositional statements that contradict what they are developing from the historical accounts. The problem with deriving doctrine from history is the assumption has to be taken that things must happen this way. An example of this is the way in which the Holy Spirit's historical events can be used as illustrations of doctrine. Um, so just to really prove this really quickly, if you have a look at me with um, over the last couple um, the weeks of sermons, now left, if you leave them unchecked, you could make doctrine when it's only recording history. So have a look, we're going to first start as in Acts chapter 7. So if you can turn with me to Acts chapter 7, I'm going to read from verses 14 to 16. Um, in this chapter, we have Stephen is speaking here, and he's speaking from his understanding of the history about the, the burial place of the patriarchs. So I'm going to read from verse 14, and it says this, Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. Now the verse of focus is verse 16. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. Now, the problem with verse 16 is that neither Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or any of the, or, or the 12 patriarchs were buried in Shechem. Only Joseph was buried in Shechem. Um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were laid in the tomb of Machpelah in, the, in their memory. Abraham brought the tomb from the Hittites, not from the um, of Hebron, not from Hamar and Shechem. 
Jacob, however, brought a well from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. And so these are the problems with this verse. The first one is the burial cave is in Hebron and it's not in Shechem, according to Genesis chapter 3, verse, uh, sorry, Genesis 23, verse 29. Jacob was buried in Hebron, not in Shechem, according to Genesis chapter 50, verse 12. Joseph, however, was buried in Shechem in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32. Abraham brought the field from the Hittites, not the Shemanites, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 30. Jacob brought a field from the well, oh sorry, Jacob brought a field and well from Hamar, but not a burial cave. In Genesis chapter 33, verse 19. Um, so either Stephen is telescoping events um, here due to the pressure or lack of time, or he is completely flat wrong. It's completely wrong from what's actually there. You know, the best thing is that Luke records it exactly as Stephen said it. It's a historical account of what Stephen said. And even though it's wrong, he records it just like it is. That's a problem with making something that's historical, making it a doctrinal statement. Another classic example is the week before last, um, Peter Sun was speaking to us about um, Acts chapter 6. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but here Peter stopped short of saying in Acts chapter 6 that these were the first deacons. Why? Now, you're going to have to ask Peter for the detail on this. But again, it's recording what happened historically. It's not the basis for doctrine. Um, on deacons, however, there are far better passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3 to assist in the development of doctrine. Hopefully you can see just in these last two sermons that we've had, um, the problems that are associated by using historical accounts or historical events and trying to develop doctrine from them. So along with it being a historical book, that's the first thing with the book of Acts, it's also very much a transitional book. Okay, we're going to trans, so we, hit, we transition historically from the gospels to the epistles. We, trans, um, we have another transition biographically. We're going to be talking about Peter and then we're going to be talking about Paul. We're going to transition from the religious. So we're going from the synagogue to the church. Dispensationally, we're going to be talking about the transition from law to grace. The program is going to change from Israel to the church. Theologically, we're going to change from Christ being um, present to the Holy Spirit being present. Pneumatologically, we're going to be looking from the Spirit being with believers to now indwelling believers. And then finally, nationally, we're going to talk about the Jewish people as a majority now going to the Gentiles as a majority. So how long was this transition to last? Well, it was only until those who were born under the law died. So the, the reference point is where the Holy Spirit is indwelling believers. But previously, that, those that people that were born under the law they, when they died, that's the transitioning period from the law into this time of the church. Okay, so now it's time to have a bit of fun and see how the historical and transitional nature of Acts can also become really helpful in many areas. Again, not by trying to develop doctrine, but seeing how these historical events held doctrine and how they unfold in the book of Acts. So if you can first turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, and the first thing we're going to look at is the keys to the kingdom. So you often know and hear this, what are these keys to the kingdom? 
So in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, we have Peter's great confession on who Jesus really is. And we have these words, it's Simon Peter speaking, verse 16, it says this, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock, on the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Verse 19 is the, the verse of focus. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, there's no doubt that Peter was given keys, but what are these keys about? Now, here's how the Catholic Church have interpreted the text. I'm going to read from the the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's a quote, and it states this. The Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. That's from 882. The Catholic Church's interpretation is that the keys is that with the keys is that Peter having the keys passed them down to his successor, who in turn passed them on to the next and so forth and so forth, all the way down to the current Pope. And there is a certain amount of both respect and fear of the Pope because he can both bind and loose unhindered. But is this really what the keys are about? Um, and if not, what could be the, another answer? So for this, I want to think, keep that in mind. And again, now we're going to turn to the book of Acts. And it's not for a doctrinal statement that we're looking for here. But we're going to see how this unfolds in the book of Acts. Um, how this actually plays out. And how it comes about. So if you turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 14, and then we're going to jump. So it's the start of his sermon. This is Peter's sermon, and then it jumps down to verse 34. But let's have a look at Acts chapter 2. And in verse 14, we read these words. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. So that's the start of it. Let's go down to verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he him says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we are told on that day that about 3,000 souls were added. And just as a sideline, we, re- we read words very similar to this last week in Acts chapter 7 at the time of Stephen's stoning. So it's effectively a very similar ending to the message from both Peter and from Stephen. And with both groups, we are told in Acts chapter 2 
and in Acts chapter 7 being cut to the heart. But the outcome is extremely different. In Acts chapter 2, the outcome is repentance and coming to faith. But when it comes to Stephen's preaching, the outcome is Stephen being stoned to death. Now, Peter had effectively already cleared the deck as such, with at least 3,000 people coming to faith in Acts chapter 2. So by the time Stephen is preaching, at least 3,000 people had come to faith, which equated to a very different or differing outcome when both groups were cut to the heart. It says exactly the same words, both groups were cut to the heart. One to turning to faith and the other to stoning Stephen. Now here is where I could play with Acts. Okay. And I could make a strong, wrong doctrinal in-conclusion statement based on these two passages. Now I could say something as silly as this. Well, if you're going to preach the gospel, make sure you're the first and never dead last. Now, how wrong would it be to make that kind of doctrinal statement using two parts of the book of Acts and coming up with a doctrine like that? Um, so, yeah, sorry. So, but sadly, many come to the same kind of wrong conclusions based on the book of Acts. That's often what we do when we see the book of Acts. We'll take this piece here and we'll do that, join them together, and we make doctrine from them. It's not a book that we should be doing that from. Anyway, I'm obviously digressing. And all I was really trying to make, you, make the point of was that Peter is the first one that does this public sermon. It's Peter, okay? Peter here has the keys that opens the first group of people being the Jews. The first group we have here is Peter. The first sermon is Peter. 3,000 are added, and it's Peter that unlocks the door. He's got the keys to the first group. Now let's consider Acts chapter 8. Now I'm not going to go there. I can't do speaking on this, so I'm going to be very brief. I can't say. So that's next week. Now I know, um, so we don't even need to turn there. But in Acts chapter 8, um, previous to the Samaritans coming to faith in Acts chapter 8, Philip preaches the gospel and the recipients do believe. So it's Philip. He's preaching to these Samaritans. He's, as he's speaking, They come to faith, but they do not receive the Holy Spirit. So in verse 14, they send Peter and James to lay hands on them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Who did they send? It's Peter. Okay, and James is there. Sorry, Peter and John. James. So the question is, why? Why couldn't Philip do it? What was wrong with Philip when he was preaching the gospel that he couldn't do it? The reason I believe is that there is, it's because the Samaritans were, who were the Samaritans? They were half Jews. They were Jews and Gentiles. They were mixed. It was this half group. And Philip does not have the keys to unlock the group, the second group. And so Peter comes, he unlocks the first group in Acts chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 8, he proceeds now with the keys to open the group to, uh, to open the door to the second group being half Jews in Acts chapter 8. Now, thirdly, if I'm asking you this question, who is the apostle, the apostle that comes to mind that was commissioned to go to the Gentiles and through the Holy Spirit wrote most of the New Testament? Who would you th- who would be thinking about? Paul, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's probably no disagreement. 
Okay, so now I'm going to ask you another question. Who is the first apostle that goes to the Gentiles where it's recorded in Scripture that the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit? Is it Paul? No. It's Peter. Isn't that interesting? Now, there is a case in Acts chapter 10 where we have an apostle that receives the vision of, the un, of clean and unclean things in a great sheet. Well, he ends up going to a household called Cornelius' house. And as this, apostle is a preach, sorry, as this apostle is preaching to them, the Holy Spirit falls on them. Um, and who is that apostle? It's none other than what we said, Peter. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. So Peter, who was given the keys to open the Jewish people in Acts chapter 2, who also opens the second group in Acts chapter 8, being the Samaritans, the half-Jews, is also the one in Acts chapter 10 who opens the third group, being the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? And straightway, Paul, the apostle, then goes through the door that's opened and starts his ministry. Um, now, notice the timing of it all. So in Acts chapter 9, we have Paul's conversion and the commission that Paul is to go to the Gentiles. Then in Acts chapter 10, we have the opening of the Gentile door, not by Paul, but by Peter. Not, and then once that door is opened, the foundational rock being Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, then the preaching of the gospel, the, the door is now opened for the Holy Spirit to indwell a believer. Whatever you loose will be loosed, and whatever you bind will be bound. And the start of the church began. Yet another question, how can we prove when the church actually started? If I'm saying that the Gentiles didn't receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit until Acts chapter 10. Um, so, well, one thing you won't find in Acts chapter 2 is the word church. So when did it start? But have a look at me with Acts chapter, so turn with me to Acts chapter 11 and verse 15. And in this chapter, we have um, Peter is partway through recounting the events that happened in Acts chapter 10. Um, and he's speaking to the Jews that are back in Jerusalem, and he's telling them what happened about this, how he went to Cornelius' house and how they came to faith. So I'm reading from verse 15, and it says this. And this is Peter speaking. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should withstand God? Here Peter is categorically stating that the event that happened um, to them as Jews in, in Acts chapter 2 is the exact same event that happened to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, proving that the church indeed start by the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, even though you don't see the word church in Acts chapter 2. Um, it is the beginning of the church. Okay, so now we're going to jump on to the second one, which is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. So leading on from here, I'd like to carry on into the second interest. Um, by looking briefly into how the recipients receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So where I'd like to go from here is if you can turn with me to John chapter 20, and we're going to start in verse 21. And it's an event where Jesus just appears out of thin air in front of his disciples, and it's after his resurrection. Okay, and that's important. It's after the resurrection. He just pops up in a room, and there he is. Verse 21, we read of um, John chapter 20. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, 22 is the verse of focus. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, Jesus is resurrected from the grave, appears, says to them, receive you the Holy Spirit. My question is this. Why is it if the disciples receive the Holy Spirit here in John chapter 20, which is sequentially after the Lord's resurrection, did they need to receive him again in Acts chapter 2, where we read, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit? Or does this mean, as some will say, that there is a difference between receiving the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit? Okay, so we're going to think about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we can see how the Holy Spirit came upon people or was with people, but never indwelt someone. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon or was with, but never indwelt permanently upon a person. Examples like King Saul, who had the Spirit go with him and then depart from him. There's also, if you think of King David, prayed, do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So why, when Jesus gave his disciples the Holy Spirit, after his resurrection, did he not permanently indwell them at this point? Now, let's back up just a bit more. I'm going to go to John chapter 14. I think this sets the stage. And again, remember, this is direct statements. It's not just a historical record. It's what's words from Jesus. So John chapter 14 I'm going to read from verse 15, and it says this. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Verse 17, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. There's a difference. He dwells with you and will future be in you. Turn to John chapter 16, verse 7. We know this. I'm sure you're familiar with this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, Jesus speaking, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So even after the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was not permanently indwelling the disciples. But in John chapter 20, was with them, that is, until Jesus would leave them to depart and to send them the helper to dwell in them forever. You see, Jesus had to depart and then go and sit at the right-hand side of the Father, showing that the work of the Lord Jesus was completed Um, And that the work of the sins being removed by the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit was permitted to permanently 
indwell a sinless believer. Do you recognize that today? That positionally in Christ, because of what Jesus has done for us, we are without sin. Not because of what, who we are, not because of what we've done, but positionally in Christ, we are without sin. And that didn't take place until Jesus took those sins and died from on the cross. And when you went back to the Father and sat down at the right-hand side of the Father, the Holy Spirit now no longer had to be with someone or to be upon them. He could indwell the sinlessness of us because of the new creation that we had become because of what Christ had done for us. That's why the Holy Spirit can indwell us Again, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, because of what Christ has done for us. But he had, the Lord Jesus had to go back to the right-hand side of the Father, sit down, the work was completed, to allow the Holy Spirit to come to indwell a believer. Which is why it's not in, Acts, in John chapter 20, but we see that in Acts chapter 2. Um, also note how the Holy Spirit came to indwell the, um, the believers in Acts chapter 2. It was a direct act of God. It was at the Feast of Shavuot or um, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And it happened after the fact that these disciples were already baptized. However, in Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit was given by the laying on of hands after they had already been baptized. Acts chapter 8, they believe Philip, they get baptized, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit until after that point. And in Acts chapter 10, we see the Holy Spirit indwelling believers as Peter was preaching. And then following this, they go and get baptized. Why all the variances? Why the changes? Why is it like this and the orders here and then in different order and somewhere else? Well, if we put this all together with the keys that Peter has given, I think, I think things will come a whole lot clearer as you see it unfold. So in Acts chapter 2, we have the receiving of the Holy Spirit. It's direct, no preaching, no laying on of hands. Then in chapter 8, we have the Holy Spirit is received only when Peter unlocks the door by the laying on of hands. To the Samaritans who had already believed the gospel from Philip's preaching. And then finally, Peter, not Paul, turns the keys to the third door being the Gentiles. And it happens while Peter is just preaching to them. Now, baptisms will also become a whole lot clearer if you can keep this in mind. Baptisms, laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit, all of these things. So if we use baptism, now it's baptisms. If we look at Acts chapter 2, the disciples, having been baptized previously, were baptized into identifying and accepting the one that would follow um, John the Baptist, which was Jesus Christ which is why the disciples are only identified as being baptized once. You see the disciples, they were baptized, but that wasn't to John's baptism. It's like, oh, why didn't they get baptized? Why is it not recorded? What was the baptism about? That you would believe on the one that comes after me. So they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So in Acts, and then following that, they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit after having believed in Jesus, after having received, um, been baptized, and then in Acts 2, they get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans, it says that they believe, and then they get baptized, 
And then Peter has to unlock the door because at this stage, the door wasn't unlocked. So they believe, they get baptized. Peter unlocks the door by laying on of the hands of the Holy Spirit. And then they're they all away as such, as in they receive the Holy Spirit. And then finally in Acts 10, we have something else. We have Peter's preaching first, who unlocks the door at the same time to the Gentiles, of which then they receive the Holy Spirit directly, without the laying on of hands, without baptisms. And then following this, they go, well, following the receiving of the Holy Spirit, they go and get baptized. You see, the thing is, when you see this in the right perspective, it doesn't matter in which order it happens, the baptism, the Holy Spirit, the laying on of hands, you're going to find that they all make sense. Without this perspective and view, you'll go all over the place trying to make doctrines and starting to put passages together to try and make it all fit. But it's something else that happens that I believe is what's happening here. So by using the viewing glass of the keys that Peter is given helps so much on unlocking all these doors and understanding in the book of Acts in regards to the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the understanding of the laying on of hands and of baptisms. And then finally, very briefly, the third interest is in regards to the Holy Spirit in the area of tongues. So tongues, often it's been um, recorded or noted that speaking in tongues shows the evidence of your spirituality. And, how oft, uh, and often this book is quoted as doctrine and evidence of this fact rather than seeing it, seeing it for what I believe is the correct approach being a historical transitional approach. Now, I remember someone I really respect being asked this question. They came up and they said, do you, do you speak in tongues? Being that his answer to this question would either qualify him or nullify him to the, to the questioner if this person was spiritual enough to listen to. Of which he replied, well, I've never tried to speak without one. <laughs> Such a good answer without giving one. Hey, so good. Now, I think in the area of tongues, many mistakes are often made. It can sometimes be perceived as I've mentioned as being or proving spirituality. And at the same time, opponents to this view will often not explain what they perceive as actually going on when one is claiming to speak in tongues. Or sometimes opponents will go too far by attributing everyone who claims to speak in tongues with being demon-possessed. What's really interesting to me is though, um, sorry, what's really interesting to me though is that when we often get into this topic, either from one side or the other, we often, I believe, miss the point completely about what is actually happening in the book of Acts. We often completely miss and don't get it at all what's actually happening in the book of Acts. And we get sidetracked. But now to get you even more confused, <laughs> um, to see where I'm going with this, I'd first like us to take a completely different starting point in this topic. Okay, and by firstly looking at this, well, you're going to take a while before you see where I'm going with this, but the, the names of angels, where I'm going to start is the, the angels in the Bible. So consider this, the names of angels in the Bible, we have Michael, we have Gavael, we have Satan, and we have Chalal ben Shachar. Okay. They only mean anything in one language. Okay. 
Michael, Michael. It is made up of three compound words, and it means who is like the Lord. It's a literal interpretation of Michael, who is like the Lord. Then we have Gavael, or Gabriel. It's made up of two compound words, meaning um, Gavael, which is a man of God. Okay. Then we have the word um, Satan, Satan. And it's one word, and his word means accuser. Okay, and then we have this other name, which is Halal ben Shacha, which is Lucifer. It's made up of three compound words, which means the shining of the dawn. Now also consider this, that all of God's names in the Old Testament only means anything in Hebrew. Like it doesn't mean, like when you look at it and all the complications of it and the differences and the things, it only pops up when you see it. And like even the words like hallelujah doesn't mean much. Like it's praise. We know that and we think of that. But there's a lot more to the words. But anyway, I'm digressing again. So um, if we take only one name, for example, we're going to talk about God's name, Yehovah. Okay. So Yehovah, Jehovah, Yahweh, it's made up of three compound words. First of all, we have the word Yehiyeh, which means future. We have the second one, which is Hover, which means the present. And we have Hayah, which means the past. So we have Yehiyeh, Hover, and Hayah, Yehovah, the one that was, the one that is, and the one that is to come. That's the name of Jehovah. And it only means something in Hebrew. Now have a look with me. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to, again, we'll, we'll get there to the point. But in Genesis chapter 11, we have this, um, this um, event that happens, which you know well, and it's called the Tower of Babel. And I'm going to read from verse 1 of Genesis chapter 11. And it says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. The whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found, uh, they, sorry, that they found a plain in the land of Shana and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower whose top, is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They did not want to be scattered over the whole earth. So here the people of one language, of which I am so convinced is Hebrew, for so many reasons, and then I don't have time to list here, rather than just the brief names that I've mentioned above, spoke this one language given to, by God to Adam or Adam and Eve. Adam is the ground. It's the same word used today. Adama is what you call ground. And Eve is chava or, or, or life. So like this, this, um, this language was given to Adam and Eve all the way through. They spoke this one language. And if you remember, they were created perfect. And I would even like to suggest to you that in perfection, it was even in language. I don't know what you think about that. But as people, they went against the command to be fruitful and multiply in this Genesis chapter 11 account. They were to go out to be fruitful and multiply. They didn't. 
So God pronounced a judgment. And what was the judgment? To speak in different languages. So that in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 11, that they would be scattered over the whole face of the earth. When they heard different languages, they would be scattered over the whole face of the earth. Then God chose one man, Abraham, and through his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, chose one nation to be in one place speaking one language. And they were not to mix with any other nation, especially with those that were around them. Um, It's seemingly opposite to the judgment of the Tower of Babel is what you're going to find what happens to Abraham as he pulls them out and puts them in one place, one language, stay there, do not mix. Really interesting. Now consider this, when the Jews disobeyed God, what was one of the great warnings that would be carried out on the Jewish people? if the Jewish people continued to disobey God, that they would be removed from their land and that in being in captivity, they were continually reminded by the hearing of foreign languages abroad and in Israel, that they were under the judgment of God, which is exactly what happened at the time of the Assyrian captivity and Israel and Judah's Babylonian captivity, different languages. But after the 70 years of captivity, having repented from their idolatry, God allowed them to go back again into the land where again the Hebrew tongue was spoken, affirming God was indeed again with them. But sadly, we know that this was short-lived, where again the Jewish people um, began to again stop following God, and they would soon hear this and speak the foreign language of Greek, and then afterwards hear the Roman tongue in the land of Israel. Now in this contents, the Messiah enters, Jesus enters, um, who has come to set the captives free and to offer the Messianic kingdom to the Jewish people. It's in the context when Greek is the language spoken. The Romans are there, they're under captivity, Jesus enters as the Messiah to set the captives free and offer the messianic kingdom to take it all back to Israel. Sadly, however, this is not the case. That's not what is accepted. And our Jewish Messiah is crucified. Now with this background, now have a look with me in Acts chapter two. And we're going to start from verse five, where we hear of tongues. Acts chapter 2, verse 5, and says this, And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are all not these who speak Galileans? Verse 8, and how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, 
Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? You know, sadly today, um, I think we are often perplexed in regards to the tongues in the book of Acts, saying ourselves, whatever could this mean? And then we go into all sorts of things to try and work that out. You see, but I believe that the tongues in the book of Acts isn't so much about our spirituality. They're not even a representation of how you, your, um, spiritual you are. But in keeping with the Old Testament, I believe it meant the same thing as it always did and it always has. That God was now in judgment of the Jewish people. Being tongues wasn't a sign of spiritual belief, but rather it was a sign of their disbelief as a nation, as they were now hearing not just the Greek and the Roman languages, but many foreign languages in the nation of Israel because of their rejection of the Jewish Messiah. And then shortly, due to this, it would shortly bring about the judgment as exactly as it is written and happened in AD 70, where the Jewish nation would be scattered throughout the whole world and to the entire world like Babel, where they would hear many, many other languages, just like in Acts chapter 2. For nearly a period of 2,000 years, they continued hearing foreign languages. Now, Acts is an amazing historical and transitioning book of which we, I think, would do well to heed and understand. But in closing, I honestly believe we are now, right where we sit today, we are now in the throngs of another transition. Um, And all I'd like to say is if you would just please consider this. The Jews are now back in the land from wherever they were dispersed throughout the whole earth. They are speaking one language, the language of Hebrew. I believe we are transitioning to a whole new phase and often we don't even see what's going on. Um, And I honestly believe that time is running out. Language is going back. The people are going back. The ones that should be taking the most understanding and interest of this is believers who have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. It's just something to consider. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you and we, we thank you that Acts is a, um, a book that is written about history and there's so much transitioning in it as well, Lord. But Lord, there is such a template that um, helps us understand again, Lord, Lord, not making doctrine from the book of Acts, but as we see events unfolding and how things happened, Lord, to give us insight into who you are and what you've done. And Lord, I just pray that we would be able to just consider as we continue to go through the book. Lord, we're a quarter of the way through your, this book of yours in the book of Acts. And Lord, just help us to consider all these things as we see how you work things through and how you proclaim, Lord, and how you work these baptisms and tongues and laying on of hands, Lord. Things that you say, Lord, in Hebrews chapter 6 are the principle, the elements of our Christian faith, the things that we need to know about. But Lord, we just see that there is transitions all around us. And Lord, I think we're in no time like ever before that we can see that you are doing something, Lord. 
We just pray, Lord, that we will be found being people, men and women of God, and standing for you in the times in which we live, Lord, giving you the praise and the honor that is only yours as we wait for the return of the Messiah, where, Lord, you will one day come and you will take that place, the one that was offered but wasn't accepted at the time, Lord, at the second coming of you coming, you will offer that kingdom. It will be accepted and you, Lord Jesus, will reign in the millennial kingdom for at least that thousand years before we go into the internal order. Lord, we just thank you for your gift. Lord, we thank you for the way in which you pull things together and the way in which you work. Lord, just help us to understand you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>